This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Today, I share of the short version. I think we still have, not you, you can stay. I think we still have the little kids. But with that, let's pray before we go to the Word of God. Heavenly Father, as we just sang, we praise you, we adore you. Even though you don't need our permission in our hearts, we, we crown you as Lord of all. We look to your word now, Lord, to see your majesty, to see your power and your glory, to see your plan and your sovereignty. Father, my prayer is, is that you would use your word to, to grow in us an understanding of who you are and what you have done, bring us that much closer to glory, that we could shine the light of Jesus on this earth that much brighter. And Father, it is in, it is in his name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. good morning. We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter... 23 this morning, if you want to start heading there in your Bibles, where we're going to be looking at God's judgment against Judah's kings. God's judgment against Judah's kings. And before we begin, I need to set the table a little bit with three things that we need to understand in order to have any chance of really grasping what God is saying in this passage. So, first, to understand this passage, we need to know why God is judging Judah's kings. We need to know why God is judging Judah's kings. You see, in God's economy, the king represented the people. You could say, as the king goes, so go the people. If the king was righteous, the people followed them in righteousness. If the king was unrighteous, the people followed them into unrighteousness. In other words, the fate of the king was the fate of the people. Which means that that this passage might be an interesting passage for us because it seems to contradict the the founding principles of our nation that are kind of baked into us. In fact, next week we're going to participate in an event that is designed to make sure we never have a king. But that leads to the second thing we need to understand about this lesson before we get into it. You see, we need to answer a very important question. That question is this. Is the principle, the principle that as goes the king, so go the people. Is that really any different in a democratic country? Is our fate any less tied to the decisions our leaders make? If our leaders fail, are we any less affected by their failure because we have multiple leaders instead of just one? 
I would say obviously the answer is no, because the nature of government is the same, whether there's one leader or many. Leaders affect the lives of those they lead in massive ways. In fact, I would say that that principle is actually truer for us because we choose who will lead us. The third thing we need to understand is this. If God is judging the king or kings of the people of Judah, we need to understand the perspective of the people who first read this. Again, remember, the people who the book of Jeremiah was written to, they are already in exile because the judgment that God is proclaiming here has already come to pass. The people reading this are already experiencing the consequences of what God is, is saying here. They had already been conquered and led away as slaves because of the sin and the idolatry that their kings had led them into. So the last thing we need to understand is what would the people have been thinking when they read Jeremiah 23 in exile? What would they have been thinking when they read this passage while they were already in exile? What would the people who rejected Jeremiah when he was actually speaking be thinking when they read this passage about God judging the kings that they followed to where they are now? And I think the answer is pretty clear. They'd be thinking like the, the guy in the third Indiana Jones movie who drank from the wrong cup. We chose poorly. They'd be recognizing that Jeremiah was right and that they had followed the wrong king. They'd be realizing that the kings they followed were actually doing them harm, not good. And so understanding that, first, that in God's eyes, as the king goes, so goes the people. And second, who we follow just as much, has just as much impact on our lives as kings do. And lastly, the people reading this book in exile realized they had chosen to follow the wrong king too late. Understanding that, I think the question this passage is, is begging us to answer is pretty obvious, isn't it? Who's your king? Who's your king is what I think this passage is begging us to answer. Look at verses 1 through 4, where first, God juxtaposes or he contrasts two different kinds of shepherds. In Jeremiah 23, beginning in verse 1, God begins with, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. 
I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. So the first thing I want you to see, the first set of shepherds that, that God puts out there in verses 1 and 2, I'm going to call the ruinous shepherds. The ruinous shepherds. And I want you to understand that all of chapter 21 and 22 is all about God judging kings. He says, this king so-and-so, this judgment. Then this king, this judgment. This king, this judgment. All of 21 and 22 is all about God's judgment against Judah's kings. So Jeremiah chapter 23, it kind of serves as this, say, summary or conclusion of all of that judgment that he's been pronouncing on those kings. So what does God say the kings or the shepherds were doing? Well, he says in verse 1 that they were destroying and scattering his sheep. In other words, if you think about it, the kings of Judah were failing at like the two primary jobs of a shepherd. Rather than keeping the sheep safe and together, the kings were destroying and scattering them. They were destroying them by leading them into idolatry and unrighteousness, and they were scattering them by allowing them to wander away from God's law. So look again at verse 2, and allow what God is saying to sink in. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. That word there, care, is, is actually attended. Concerning the shepherds who attend for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away. You have not attended to them. Therefore, behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds. Now, regardless of what side of the political aisle you're on, you might be thinking, yeah, Grant, I understand what you're saying about the kings of Judah, and, but I didn't vote for the immoral so-and-so who's leading us at any given time. You see, there's a flaw in that thinking. You see, we get so caught up in this world, in this life, that we forget that we have to see this whole thing from God's perspective, not from ours. And saying that one guy is your leader or another guy is your leader is missing the point completely. God is talking about who will rule your life. Who will you look to for salvation and hope and security? And before you say, because you're in church, well, that's easy, I look to God. Who do you think would make your life more better? More God or some political candidate? And you might know that in your head, but what does your mouth and your life actually say? Who do you talk about more? Who do you get more angry about? Because from God's perspective, you only have two choices. Either God is your king or the devil is your king. That's it. Period. End of the discussion. Everything else 
falls under those two categories. Everyone else you look to for security and hope and peace all fall under those two categories. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul said this regarding the Christians' allegiances before they were saved. He says in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses, in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. Listen, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So who is your king? Who's your king? Because look at the contrast God makes, rather than the ruinous shepherds. Look at verses 3 and 4, where God introduces these responsible shepherds. He says, Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. Now again, look at the contrast. Rather than destroying and scattering the sheep like the ruinous shepherds in verses 1 and 2, look how God says His responsible shepherds will do the opposite in verses 3 and 4. He says in verse 3 that His responsible shepherds will gather the sheep. And then He says in verse 4 that they will care for them. And what effect is that going to have on the sheep at the end of verse 4? God says His sheep will fear no more nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing. That's great, but what does that have to do with us? Well, did this happen? Did, did what God say happen? Kind of? Yes, God did bring His people back, and, and He did put people like Ezra and Nehemiah and Joshua over them, and, and Ezra brought the word back in, and Nehemiah brought the, the kingship and the, and the protection back in. Joshua led the people back to God. So yes, that was about it, though. A handful of generations, and it had already withered. By the time we get to Malachi, Judah's right back where it began. Their priests are making a mockery of, of God, and everything is a mess. In other words, there's something else God is talking about here. Yes, this did happen, but it was going to happen in a much bigger way. I want to be very clear here so you understand who God is talking about. Ultimately, God is describing me in your life here in verses 3 and 4. Let me explain what I'm talking about. When Jesus finally got here, the great shepherd, the good shepherd, the one who actually did it right, who led all of his people into everything that's described in verses 3 and 4, when he arrived, beginning with Peter and the other apostles, he instructed them to guard and to care for and to feed his sheep when he left. And then later in the Bible, those apostles passed down that responsibility to other biblical leaders like Barnabas and Silas and Timothy. And then later they passed it down to others. Listen to how Paul passed it down to Timothy just before he died in 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. He said, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now listen, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, 
entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's the passing down of this. But more importantly, listen to what Paul said to Timothy about the weight of the job he was passing down to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. He told Timothy, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set for the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. He's describing the job Timothy's supposed to do. Until I come, devote yourself to the reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to preaching. Do not neglect the gift you have that you got from the laying on of hands. Practice these things, verse 15. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Now listen to verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, everything I just said, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now let me be very clear about what I'm saying here. Does this make me your king? Please, for the love of God, absolutely not. This is not that kind of church. Does this make me a prophet? No. Again, it's not, not that kind of church. The authority of my shepherding and the weight of what I do goes only so far as it aligns with the good shepherd's words. And you're called to be Bereans and to test what I say. However, when it comes to answering that question of who is your king, based on what God is saying in this passage about shepherds that he would appoint over his people, I think some questions need to be answered. What are you saying when you decide whether or not to listen to my counsel? You're deciding who your king is. What are you deciding when you reject my biblical counsel because it makes you angry? You're deciding who your king is. Do you care about what God's appointed under-shepherd thinks about your life? Maybe it'd be better to think about it this way. Picture a sheep, and this sheep is bleeding. It needs the help of its shepherd. Because this sheep hasn't eaten for days, it's stuck on a roof, and it's got its fur is all matted and full of burrs. It's got a branch hanging out of its horns because it got stuck in a tree a few days back. In other words, should you make any effort to seek out God's under-shepherd's counsel for your life, for the decisions you make, for the issues you have in your marriage and other relationships, the desires of your heart, or should you just wait until you're stranded on a roof with a tree stuck in your horns before you ask for help? In other words, listen, what does your view of me, the under-shepherd that God has appointed to lead you, have to say about your answer to the question, who's your king? Here's the thing, though. This is where we misunderstand God. This is where we, we don't know God. Look back at verse 4. God said, I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. I really want you to understand, please understand, that is the heart that God has given me for you. 
It is not a heart of lording it over you. It is a heart of care. I care about you. I do not want to, to, to press you or push you into something that, that is wrong. I want to lead you to Him. I want you to have the fearlessness of knowing that you are in God's will. I want you to have the hope that you're, you're being watched by someone who desperately wants nothing more for you than to know your God better and, and, and follow Him closer. I want you to have the security that you are in the care of the Good Shepherd, the Great Shepherd. Again, does this make me king or, or will I always do this perfectly? Absolutely not. My shepherding is only as legitimate as it is biblical. But I can promise you this, brothers and sisters. Please hear me say this when I say I take this job very seriously, probably more seriously than you know. The Bible says that I will have to give an account for this body when I get in front of the judgment seat in heaven. But the great shepherd of your souls has given me a heart for you. I'm, I'm looking forward to that day. A heart that wants your best. A heart that wants to lead you towards salvation and righteousness, not judgment and exile. So I ask again, who is your king? Who is your king? Look at how God accomplished this in verses 5 and 6, where He says, Behold the righteous branch. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. So what does God say this righteous branch will do in verse 5 and 6? Well, first in verse 5, he says this righteous branch will reign on the throne of David. And what does he say that reign will look like? Well, he says at the end of verse 5 there that he will deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. Now, I know you all been coming to church too long because I didn't hear anybody gasp. I don't hear anybody weeping. Listen, if there's one thing we don't want God to do is execute justice and righteousness because we're neither. The Bible could not be clearer. No one is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glorious requirement of perfection that God commands. The indictment of every human being is wickedness. The verdict from your Creator is guilty, and the sentence is death and exile in hell under the wrath of God for all eternity. But there's one other little thing that Jeremiah says about how this king will reign. He said that he will reign wisely. And I'd add, thank God, it's not according to our wisdom. Listen to how Paul described God's wisdom in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 20. 
He said, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? That's the wisdom that would say, you deserve what you get. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly or the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. What was the foolishness that they preached? He said, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. In other words, the wisdom with which this righteous king reigns, it's a sacrificial wisdom. It's the wisdom of God that says the righteous will die for the unrighteousness, for the unrighteous. It's a wisdom that sounds foolish to this world. Because it's a wisdom that says, I will die in the place of sinners. It's ridiculous. So because of this, this sinner-saving wisdom, not only does God say, behold, the righteous branch that reigns, he says in verse 6, behold, the righteous branch who saves. The righteous branch who saves. And how will he save? He'll save by dying on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. To take away the filth and the wickedness that we have accrued over our life. And the end of verse 6 says that in exchange, he'll, he'll save us by counting His righteousness to completely unrighteous people. He'll just give it to them. Martin Luther called this a foreign righteousness or an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that's not our own. Now, here's something interesting. God's making a, a really cool little play on words here that we don't understand because we're not Hebrews in exile. But remember, the people reading this, they had already been conquered and dragged away because they had followed in the footsteps of their unrighteous kings. And the last king they had was a king who displayed all of his impotence and weakness by watching his family get slaughtered before Babylon gouged his eyes out and then hauled him off as a spectacle to Babylon. That impotent, defeated, humiliated king was the last king they knew. And his name was Zedekiah. And Zedekiah literally means the Lord is righteous. The Lord is righteous is what Zedekiah means. But the people reading Jeremiah 23, they heard a slightly different name. You see, if you take the name Zedekiah and you just change it a little bit, it means something different. God said the name of the king that was coming was going to be Zedekiah, not Zedekiah, Zedekiah, which means the Lord is our righteousness. In other words, God is saying, unlike that impotent, worthless king that, that could do nothing against the world powers of Babylon, could do nothing to save you, who actually led you into exile, unlike that, unlike that guy, this king's name will be Zedekiah, which means the Lord is our righteousness. He's going to give you what you need to not be where you are. He will lead His people into righteousness because He will give His righteousness to unrighteous people. 
So who is your king, Cedar Springs Church? Because here's the thing. As far as God is concerned, as the king goes, so go the people. If your king is unrighteous, you are unrighteous. But if you follow Zedekiah, the Lord is our righteousness. Then as he goes, so you go. His righteousness is your righteousness. But here's the thing, you see. The people of Judah wanted God to be their savior. They wanted God to protect them from their enemies. They wanted God to keep rain on the fields. They wanted God to keep kids in the house. They wanted God to save them. But they didn't want Him to be their Lord. They wanted God to be their Savior, but they wanted to do whatever they wanted. And the lesson we have from this passage is that everyone who first read this passage is now realizing how wrong they were. That you can't have a God who is your Savior and not your Lord. They're realizing that, that God won't be their Savior if He's not also their Lord. And the same thing is just as true for us this morning. It is just as true for us this morning. If you say, I want the Lord as my righteousness to be my Savior, then know this. That King, Jesus Christ, He must also be your Lord. He must also have sway in your life. You must also submit to Him. You can't have one without the other. The King who saves must also be the King who reigns in your life. He must reign in your marriage and in your mouth. Sometimes at the same time. He must reign in your parenting and in your profession. He must reign in your attitudes and in your actions. In your heart and how you live. So who is your king? Will it be the ruinous shepherds or the righteous branch who reigns and saves? Because look at what God says will happen to those of whom he is king in verse 7 and 8. He says, therefore, because of what I just said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up the, and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. Then they shall dwell secure in their own land. Did this happen? Kind of. Again, did, some people came out of, out of, out of Babylon, out of, out of the lands of the north, but it was only like maybe 30 or 40,000. It wasn't a whole lot. In fact, a lot of them wanted to stay in Babylon because it was really comfortable. It was kind of anticlimactic. And again, by the time we get to Malachi, it was already another huge mess. So I want you to think about what God is saying here. When he said, they shall no longer say as the Lord lives who brought the people up out of Egypt. The day that billions of gallons of water piled up on top of each other to make a way for Israel to walk through on dry land. That day. 
the day that the people of Israel were looking up at whales and sharks in the water as they walked through. The day that God led His people through that sea with a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. The day that that God brought enough water for millions of people out of a rock. The day that God descended on a mountain and shook it with all the fire and thunder and lightning that was taking place. That day. He's saying that day won't hold a candle to the day when when the righteous branch comes for his people. Won't be close. They'll they'll forget about it. He, he, He says that day won't even be remembered when the Lord is our righteousness leads his people home. So there must be something else he's talking about here. Because that's not what it was like when they came back from Babylon. It's kind of like that, but there's a different time when that will happen. Listen to how Paul puts it. He says, The trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. This is a day that sounds, sounds like the day that's being described here in Jeremiah. He said, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Wow! Then we who are alive, who are left, who just watched dead people rise up, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. You're in the clouds now with dead people. To meet the Lord in the air... And so we will always be with him. Behold the ruinous and responsible shepherds. Behold the righteous branch. And lastly, behold the returning king. That's a day that will be remembered. Do you want to be part of that procession? Then who's your king? Do you want to be called home by the sky-rending voice of the king of kings and the lord of lords? It's not a rhetorical question. Do you want to be called home by that king? Then who's your king? Who does your life say your king is? What do your words say your king is? Do you want his righteousness to be your righteousness? Who's your king? Brothers and sisters, we must let the king who reigns with the wisdom of the cross and saves with his own righteousness, we must let that king also be the king of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a glorious gift it is that you have shown us who our king is that you have given examples of him, that that we can actually hear his words. Father, you have placed your spirit in our hearts so that we can know him beyond these words. We can know him with our thoughts and our desires. Father, I pray that you would give us a yearning, an unquenchable thirst to make Jesus more our King, to put off the old things and put on 
what He has designed for us, to walk in His ways, to live in His will, to point others to Him, to display the freedom and the hope and the security that we have in our King. Father, I thank You for the way that You have done this in Your Word. I thank You for the way that You are continuing to do this in our life. And it is in Jesus' name, our King, I pray. Amen.